to Acts chapter 5, verse 33. We'll be looking at Acts chapter 5, verses 33 through 42. If you don't have a Bible, it will be on the screen. There is also some Bibles in the pews around you, some blue paperback Bibles. Uh, feel free to utilize those as well. And as always, if you don't own a Bible, that is our free gift to you. Acts chapter 5 is where we're going to be today as we continue our uh, part 2 of our sermon series. Uh, it's a very short sermon series, just two parts, but uh, one on civil disobedience for the glory of God. As we looked last week and saw an example from the disciples of civil disobedience, what that looks like, how it is to be done for Christians. We now come to the next portion of that, kind of the result of what happened there in Acts chapter 5. We begin today, Acts chapter 5, verse 33, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Acts five thirty-three through 42. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thetis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas, the Galilean, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So them, so, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Bow your heads and pray with me. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come again today to your word. We come again asking for what we need, and that is your grace. Lord, as sinful people, we know that we come to a book that represents and depicts and describes for us a holy God. And Lord, we come asking that in your kindness, in your grace, you would give us the ability by the power of the Holy Spirit to see and understand what you have spoken to us by your word today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So you will recall from last week in our story the situation that the apostles found them in. If you don't, let me just recap for us. The apostles here, as always, led by Peter and him being the main mouthpiece, were once again found guilty of disobedience, guilty of disobeying the Jewish council, of preaching Christ, preaching the resurrected Christ, causing a big issue for these Jewish leaders, for the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the council of the temple. And so they brought them. You remember at first they, they took them by force and they threw them in prison. 
Then after having miraculously been released from prison by an angel of the Lord, you recall that they uh, went and asked the apostles if they would please come back to them. And the apostles do. They come back to stand before the council to essentially stand before the authorities and give an account for what they are being accused of. And if you recall, there was this great moment where after being accused of these things, what does Peter and the apostles do? The exact things that they were accused of, right? They continue preaching the word of God. They continue to do exactly what God had commanded them to do, even in the very presence of the Jewish council. The apostles here in Acts find themselves in a rather precarious situation, don't they? A situation that we don't long to find ourselves in, I don't think, if, if we're being honest. But the apostles here find themselves behaving, acting. Really, they find themselves in the middle of a rich history of civil disobedience found all throughout the scriptures on the part of those who are true followers of God. They are not the first to engage in this kind of disobedience to authorities in lieu of obedience to God. To just name a few examples, we could remember the Hebrew midwives in Exodus chapter 1 who and were given the command to kill the Hebrew children. And instead, they were leaving them be. They were letting them go. They were saving their lives and, and lied to the authorities, saying these Hebrew women, they, man, they just are so, so fruitful, and they just give birth before we can get there, and there's nothing we can do. They engage in this sort of civil disobedience as well. Or, or consider Rahab, who engaged in civil disobedience when she hid the spies, the Israelites who had come into Jericho to spy out the land to see what was really going on. And, and she, having honor and reverence for their God, seeing his power, seeing his authority, that he is the one true God, engages in this sort of civil disobedience, disobeying the authorities and lying to them about where the spies were and hiding them instead. We see also in the case of Elijah, when he opposed Ahab and Jezebel, and indeed had to run for his life as he stood up for Yahweh. Or consider Mordecai when he refused to bow down to Haman in the book of Esther and risked his life. Not only that, Esther risked her life to go before the king on behalf of her people. And these are just a few examples of, of a rich history in the scriptures of those who engage in this kind of civil disobedience. But it would be hard for me to, to engage in this sort of list or this recalling of those who have engaged in this without mentioning what's probably my favorite example and certainly one of the most well-known examples in Scripture, and that's the example of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In the book of Daniel, you recall the story where King Nebuchadnezzar creates of himself and for himself this golden image, this great towering golden image and we don't know for sure if it was an image of himself or, or of one of his gods, but either way, what we do know was that it was in direct opposition to what it meant to worship the one true God, Yahweh. And these Hebrews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were caught in this situation, and they were indeed exposed. They were tattled upon by the leaders under Nebuchadnezzar, and they were outed. And they told Nebuchadnezzar, hey, there's these... Hebrews who refused to bow down. The rule was when the music played and you heard the music, you were to immediately bow down and worship this golden image. And these men being faithful to Yahweh, being faithful to the one true God, 
refused. They would not bow down. They could not bow down. And they knew the threat. The threat was there that those who refused to bow down would be cast into the furnace and burned. And in the case of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we have presented for us as they are then brought by the authorities, brought before King Nebuchadnezzar, and given the chance. He was furious, but he gave them one last chance. He says, the music's going to play, and you are going to bow down and worship this golden image, or you're going to face the consequences. And we have just one of the most amazing responses by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And seriously, I, I read some of these, some of these uh, dialogues in Scripture, some of these things that are happening to people who, who refuse to submit to the authorities, but rather choose to submit to the Lord. You get dialogue from the text of Scripture that's, that's better than any movie script. Here you have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego standing before King Nebuchadnezzar. And this is what Daniel chapter 5 Verse 16 through 18 tells us, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, in other words, if these are the consequences for not bowing down to your image, if this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Stopping there, that's already a pretty cool statement, right? A pretty bold statement on the part of these Hebrews to stand before this man who literally holds their life in his hands and say, my God is more powerful than you and your gods and your furnace, and our God is able to save us out of your hand. But if you know the story, you know that their answer didn't stop there, did it? It gets even better. And even more important for us when they say, but if not, in other words, even if he does not deliver us from this fiery furnace and we are burnt to a crisp, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. You read this testimony of these Hebrew men, these young men, where they say, we're not going to do it. If this is what it means that we're going to get burnt up, even if our God, who is able to save us, chooses not to, because as we know, God and his sovereignty does not always intervene to save his people, does he? From the persecution, from the suffering, even from death in this life. They said, even if he does not save us, we still aren't going to bow down. You know why? Because like we said last week, these men had a vision into eternity, a vision beyond just this life, beyond just this life and this death even. But their commitment to God extended even into eternity, saying, you can kill us, king. God might even allow you to burn us up in the fiery furnace. But the statement is still true. He will deliver us out of your hand. You see, the statement was true for Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to say this, even if they get burned up, because really what they were saying was, he will deliver us out of your hand, either from the fire or through the fire. One way or another, victory is ours by our God. He will deliver us, either out of your hand and this world in general, or else these fires are not going to do a thing to us. And you know the story, right? 
The king, in a rage, heats the furnace up seven times hotter than it was supposed to be heated. The men who, who throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the furnace, even they are consumed. They are killed by the flames. And what ends up happening is we see King Nebuchadnezzar reacting, saying, did we not throw three men into the fire? And yet now there are four. And one has the appearance of a son of the gods. This amazing scene we see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in. And the ultimate result that is true of all believers is that the Lord was with them every step of the way. That his presence never left them. And yes, he did save them from the fire. But even if he had not, his presence would have still been with them. When I think about what it would have been like to be the apostles, to be in their shoes facing the opposition I wonder if they were recalling to their minds these kinds of examples. The examples of Rahab, of the midwives, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Thinking to themselves, just remember those who have come before us. Remember those who have stood firm and how God did not forsake them. Examples of the faithful who stood firm in obedience to the Lord rather than buckle under the threat of earthly rulers. I suspect that they did. I suspect that these men who who knew the word of God, who knew the Jewish scriptures, would have recalled these stories and would have taken a great amount of hope and comfort from the story of these three young Hebrew men. And it gave them courage. I think for us as Christians today, when we read the story now of the apostles, we have for us the same stories they had of all these Old Testament saints who stood firm in the face of opposition, who even stood against the authorities of their day. Not only that, we have the story of the apostles and the other New Testament authors and martyrs throughout church history to look at. And we have them for a purpose. And I think today, and my hope is that as we read, as we study about the civil disobedience of the apostles here in Acts chapter 5, that we would take courage, that we would take heart, that we would take hope in their suffering and be prepared for when the suffering inevitably comes for us. So let's look at our story. We see here in this portion of our story, after they have, uh, have spoken the gospel to the Jewish leaders, we see them enraged. It's what verse 33 starts with. When they, when they heard this, what is the this? The gospel again proclaimed the resurrected Christ, the very message that they hated, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. They went from asking them nicely to come so that they wouldn't, and wouldn't anger the people to now they are ready to have them killed right now, right here on the spot. But then this guy steps in, this guy Gamaliel, and this is point number one, the wisdom of Gamaliel. Verses 33 through 39 We see this man who now stands up to speak, to offer some insight, some wisdom into the situation. This was a man on the council who was not a Sadducee. If you recall, we we mentioned last week and a couple weeks ago how the majority of this Jewish council was made up of Sadducees. They were kind of the ruling body at the time. So this man, being a Pharisee, makes this instance a little bit more significant. Because the Sadducees were were more concerned with the political aspect of their leadership. They were more concerned with the political nature of what it meant to lead the people, while the Pharisees were concerned with the law. They were observers of, teachers of adherence to the law. That was their specialty. That was their, uh, their emphasis. So this guy, Gamaliel, a Pharisee, 
one committed to the law, and one that, as we know from Jewish history, was very well known. In fact, he's mentioned multiple times in the Talmud and is even considered to be one of the most well-known, one of the greatest minds in relation to the law. A guy so significant that, as we find out later on in the book of Acts, he was the guy who Saul, later became Paul, studied under as a Jew. So this guy, Gamaliel, who commands a great deal of respect, a great deal of authority, a great deal of attention, now stands up to speak and offer insight, offer his wisdom into the situation. And what's interesting about Gamaliel is that he was partially right and he was partially wrong. The wisdom that he gives, the insight that he offers is earthly wisdom. It is earthly insight. You see, he was right in his warning against killing these men for fear of making them martyrs for their cause. You recall just a few verses earlier, they refused to take them by force away from the people because they were afraid of what the people might do. After all, these men, by the power of the Holy Spirit, were going around Jerusalem healing people. That sick and lame and injured and demon-possessed were even being brought to Jerusalem and being healed by the hands of the apostles. Certainly, the people would have been furious to find that these men had been killed. And yet, this is what the council now wants to do. So Gamaliel is right in standing up and saying, hey, it's a bad idea to kill these men. This is a bad idea. He says, consider these other men, these other movements, if you will. And he then proceeds, proceeds to name two other movements, two other men that, in his mind, were similar to Jesus and his movement. He says, before these days, Thetis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. And now you might be asking yourselves, well, who is this Thetis? Like, where does he show up in Jewish history or in church history? And the answer is, we don't know, because he doesn't, which is exactly the point that Gamaliel's making. This guy led a move, movement, led a, a revolt of some sort that ultimately, when left to itself, came to nothing. He gives another example. A guy named Judas, the Galilean, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. He's making his case, saying, look, this has happened before. Movements have come, leaders have come, rebels have come, and rebels have gone. And we didn't have to intervene. We didn't have to snuff it out. It won't last. His argument is saying, look, let's not, let's not kill these men. Let's just let them go and trust that this issue will resolve itself. His answer is one that demonstrates a great amount of wisdom. But it's only earthly wisdom. Telling them not to kill the apostles was the right advice, but for the wrong reasons, wasn't it? His concern was not for Yahweh, was not for the work of God, the redemption that is being brought now through Jesus Christ. His concern was not, look, this is the means by which salvation has come. Let these men continue to preach. That was not his argument. That was not his concern. He was very pragmatic in his approach but not faithful. In a sense, what he was proposing 
was that they hedged their bets, saying, look, let's not kill these men, okay? Because in case you're wrong, what are the consequences? He says in verse 38, so in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. Well, what does he go on to say in verse 39? But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. And he says, you might even be found opposing God. This guy was very pragmatic in his approach. As a teacher of the law, though, what he should have advised them to do is what? Let's go to the scriptures. Let's go to the scriptures and see if what these men are saying is true. If he had done that and truly checked them by the scriptures, the same way the Bereans did, right? He would have found with them to be, them to be telling the truth. He would have likely come if he had truly listened to their teaching to the same conclusions that they had come to and that other Jews had come to. And the same conclusions that Jesus brought to them saying, the Old Testament speaks of me. But that's not what they did. Instead, he says, don't kill them just in case this is true. Not let's check it by scripture and see if it's true, but just in case it is true, let's not kill them. He's attempting to, to hedge their bets, right? Like when you, when you go to, not that I've ever done this, but from what I understand, if you go to the horse track and you bet on horses, right? Some would say it's a bad idea to put all your money on one horse. Some would argue you should hedge your bets. Bet on a little bit on another horse or two other horses. That way, if this one horse loses, you might still get some of your money back, right? If you bet on another horse, a smaller amount, you won't lose all your money. You, you can recoup a little bit of your money. It's a hedging of their bet to say, let's not kill these guys just in case they're right. It's still the wrong answer. It's still the wrong heart motivation. But what's interesting is that it's kind of true in a sense. But this is the posture that he takes and that he, he pushes the council to. Just in case this is true, let's let them go. I think this is actually a, a posture that is still somewhat common in the United States today, in our culture today. But the world around us takes an approach of, you know, I'm not really a Christian, but like, I don't know, maybe it's true. Maybe there is a God. I think this is probably the, the reason so many people nowadays call themselves agnostic, right? It's an attempt to kind of hedge your bet. And I'm not just going to come outright and claim that there is no God. I'll just say I don't know, just in case I'm wrong, right? As though that does you any good at all. If these men, which they are, are right in this hedged bet that this is true, which it is, what have they accomplished in this? Nothing for themselves. But this is the case. This is where Gamaliel ironically spoke the truth. In verse 39, he says, If it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. To suggest that no undertaking of man will succeed as he does is in an eternal sense Correct, right? 
eternally, there is nothing that will have any success in this world, no movement, no claims, no leaders, none of them will have success outside of Christ, outside of that which God is doing. And that's a true statement. Indeed, the prophet says, unless the Lord builds the house, in vain the builders strive. But that is not what Gamaliel has in mind here. The entire speech is rooted in earthly outcomes, in earthly wisdom, and is therefore demonstrably false. Indeed, there are a host of undertakings in this world that have been very successful according to earthly wisdom and earthly standards. We could name several, but just think of any religion out there outside of Christianity. Each and every one of them, many of them very successful. There are millions and millions of people who are followers of Islam, who are followers of Buddhism, followers of Hinduism. By earthly standards, they are very successful. These movements are extremely successful. And so in that sense, what he's saying is false and it's wrong. But nevertheless, when we as Christians read the words of this great leader of the Pharisees, we smile because we hear the biblical truth that he is accidentally putting forward. The biblical truth that sneaks through in this statement. If it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. And you might even be found opposing God. Nothing that the Lord has set forth to do will be undone or overthrown. He accomplishes all that he wills. That's what it means to be God. That's what it means to be sovereign. If God is not able to accomplish all that he wills, then he's not actually God. What we see here, I think it's always worth pointing out when we see an illustration of the sovereignty of God we see a great illustration of God's sovereignty in this situation, of him providentially moving. Because the apostles have now been, though beaten, certainly, they've now been released. They've now been released so that they can go and continue preaching the word of God so that the church can continue to expand. All because this earthly wisdom put forth by Gamaliel. God, in his providence, in his sovereignty, even uses faulty earthly wisdom and earthly leaders to accomplish his will, to further the spread of the gospel, to further his kingdom. We see all throughout the pages of Acts, and here included, demonstrations of the sovereignty of God saturating the pages. It might not be as explicitly stated as when Paul says, God uh, predestined all of this to happen. And yet we still see this is the sovereignty of God at work, expanding the kingdom even by way and use of faulty earthly wisdom. Once again, we see God bringing his will about through earthly men and the exercising of earthly wisdom. But we take great hope in this, don't we? We take great comfort in this that our God is sovereign over all things. Point number two, we see the joy in suffering expressed in the apostles. Verse 40 says, And when they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus 
and let them go. Though they, they didn't kill them, they heard Gamaliel's advice and they said, you know what, you're probably right. We shouldn't kill them. They certainly were not going to let them get off without getting their licks in, right? Without any kind of punishment. And so they beat them and told them again, shaking their finger at them, stop it. Stop preaching the name of Christ. You are to cease and desist right now. But this time they added a beating. They added a flogging. We see here this represents an escalation in the persecution that's coming upon the apostles. It started out as them being brought forth, maybe being in prison for a time, rebuked, sternly warned. But we see things starting to develop into greater and worse persecution. But look at verse 41. As the persecution escalates, what also increases? What also escalates? The apostles' motivation and the apostles' joy. Verse 41 says, Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They were recalling all those people throughout their history. The midwives. They were recalling the uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were recalling Rahab. And they said, we're now a part of that group. We are worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. And what an honor that is. This is one of my favorite scenes in the Bible. The reaction of these apostles to getting flogged. They're not moaning and grumbling. They're as happy as they can be. They're high-fiving one another. It's not just that their suffering didn't take away their joy. What we see in the pages of Scripture here in Acts is that their suffering increases their joy. They were joyful not in spite of their suffering, but because of their suffering. They recognized that what they were doing was right because they were suffering for the name of Christ. They believed what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 and 11, as he was beginning his Sermon on the Mount. What did he say? He said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The apostles believed the words of Christ because they experienced it here and now. How different this is from the way that most Americans react to persecution. Even over the slightest bit of injustice that comes our way, don't we often want to react with a sense of, well, that's not fair. Well, that's unjust. I can't believe this is happening to me. This needs to be remedied. A sort of indignation at the idea that we would ever suffer for the sake of Christ. And we immediately want it resolved, right? It's understandable. And certainly as, as Christians, we ought to be opposed to injustice in the world. But at the same time, as Christians, our posture ought to be one similar to the apostles. That when persecution does come, when suffering does come, we, we not act surprised. We not be indignant at the people around us, the authorities, or even at God himself. That's not the way the apostles react. 
They're joyful. And they leave there happy to be able to suffer for the name. But they are counted worthy. Do we have this kind of attitude? Do we have a, a desire to be counted worthy, to be counted among these kinds of people? Psalm 118, 6 and 7 says, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look and triumph on those who hate me. We ought to read verses like these in the Psalms and say, whatever may come my way, so what? What can man do to me? My hope is that when we face persecution, when we face injustice, when we face hardships, it would frustrate those who would bring the persecution against us. They would get so frustrated at the fact that there's nothing they can do to, to penetrate our skin. There's nothing they can do that, to cause us to react. Nothing they can do to offend us. That ought to be our posture. Let us not forget that whatever we go through on this earth, whether persecution or otherwise, we have nothing to fear, as the psalmist says. Because there is truly nothing that man can do to us. Certainly nothing that has any lasting effect. Let us take courage in this as the apostles did. And lastly, let Christ reign supreme. Verse 42. This chapter concludes with this amazing statement in verse 42. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. These men took their licks and then went right on doing what they were doing, preaching the gospel. There was nothing going to get these guys down. There was nothing that was going to stop them. You can kill them, and that might shut up that one guy. But guess what? There's more and more and more being added every single day. Persecu persecution didn't get these guys down. It got them hyped. They're like those football players getting ready for a football game, banging their helmets together. Yeah, let's go get them. That's what persecution was for them. It got them hyped, it got them psyched, and sent them right back out to do it some more. Let's go see what else we can do. See how much more trouble we can cause for the name of Christ. While the Jewish council saw the apostles as a picture of disobedience and rebellion, they serve for us as a picture of submission. Submission to God, even in the face of persecution. It's not the picture of submission that we often think of. When we think about submission as human beings, we think of servants, we think of, of those who are below other people, we think of authority and those under authority, and it's unpleasant and hard, but they're quiet, they're silent, kind of unseen. But the picture of submission we see from the disciples here is not that. It's a picture of submission to the Lord that causes a little bit of a ruckus, a little bit of a stink. Never being belligerent or rude, you remember from last week. They come willingly before the council. They never say anything before the council that is, that is intended to, to be uh, insulting for the sake of being insulting. That's not their goal. Their goal isn't to be jerks. Their goal is to be faithful, even when it's unpleasant to the world. I want to conclude with a story of two men. Their names are Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. And if you've 
read on, on martyrdom, maybe if you've read Fox's Book of Martyrs or, or perhaps read biographies of various martyrs, these are maybe some names you've come across, but maybe not. But these are two men that were both martyred during the Reformation. They were killed under the rule of Queen Mary, Mary Tudor, also known as Bloody Mary, a woman who killed over 300 Protestant individuals. These men, though they had very little in common, or, or excuse me, very little interaction with one another, very little overlap, what they did share in common was that they were both faithful to preach the word of God faithfully. They both spoke out against the abuses being done by the Roman Catholic Church and, and the Pope. They both spoke out against the abusive indulgences, and they both spoke highly of the word of God and encouraged those to, who had the ability to take hold of it and read it for themselves and take comfort and hope from the very word of God. These were all things that the Roman Catholic Church despised. And that Queen Mary, as a, a sort of ambassador for the Roman Catholic Church in England, sought to smother and put out. These men, though their lives barely overlapped, where they did overlap was at the very end of their life, when they were both martyred together, when they were burned at the stake with one another, for the gospel. There's this amazing scene, again, of these two men who really didn't have all that much interaction. But this scene at the end of their life, it's like they'd been brothers for their whole lives. It's like they had known one another forever. It was like Jonathan and David. There's this amazing quote as they are, are getting ready, as they're being brought out to be executed, to be burned at the stake. And this comes from Fox's Book of Martyrs. Quote, when they came to the stake, Mr. Ridley embraced Latimer fervently and bid him, Be of good heart, brother, for God will either assuage the fury of the flame or else strengthen us to abide it. Doesn't that sound very similar to something that we heard back in the book of Daniel? He said, Look, brother, be of good courage. The best that can happen to us here today is that we get to meet Jesus. Maybe the Lord will save us from this fire. He's able, and he has before. But if he doesn't, brother, trust in this, that he will give us the strength that we need to endure. And that's true of all of us, brothers and sisters. As we face persecution in this world, and it will come. That's not my promise. That's the promise of the word of God. Persecution will come for those who desire to live godly lives, to those who follow in Christ's footsteps. And this is true of us, that we are called to be of good heart. God will either assuage the fury of the flame or give us the strength to abide it. As they were ultimately burned at the stake and killed, as the flames rose around Latimer and Ridley, Latimer encouraged Ridley, and these are one of the last words that he ever spoke. He said, be of good comfort, Mr. Ridley, and play the man we shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. And we stand here today as a product of these men's faithfulness in the Protestant Reformation. Indeed, their fl their, the flame that was lit by their bodies was not extinguished as the true gospel was preserved even through this difficulty and God's church remains we all want to be like those men, don't we? 
We all want to be like Mr. Ridley and Mr. Latimer. These examples that we see from the Bible and throughout church history of those who stood firm in the face of persecution. But the question that we need to be asking is how are we preparing now for the persecution that will inevitably come later? Because for many of us, and I include myself in this, I face very little persecution in this world. Very little. And yet, like many of you, even that small amount of persecution, that discomfort, makes it difficult to share the gospel, makes it difficult to live out my faith. So we need to be asking, if, if we stand right now in a place that's very easy to stand for the gospel, what are we doing to prepare for the times when it won't be so easy, when persecution will intensify? I would encourage you to be asking that question. And you know what the answer is? It's the same answer it always is. It's the gospel. We are to be preparing for those times by regularly and fervently and intentionally studying and reminding ourselves of the gospel, of what is true for us in Christ Jesus. The more the reality of our redemption, of our security, of our assurance sinks through into our heart, the more what the world has to say or do to us means nothing. I think it's kind of a reality that the more our hearts are softened by the gospel, the more our skin is thickened to those around us, to the world that would seek to persecute us. The more we know the truths of God's word, the truths of scripture, the more we are abiding in Christ. If you are a woman in here and went to the women's conference, then you've learned all about that this weekend. The more we're doing that, the harder it is for the world around us to have any effect on us, to be able to penetrate our skin and get to us. Why? Because our hearts belong to Christ. Church family, let me encourage you. Be in God's word. Be reminding yourself of the gospel so that when the opportunity arises, first of all, you'll be able to declare the gospel boldly and confidently to those around you. More than that, so that when you do face persecution, you will be able to stand firm. Not because your knees are in and of themselves that strong. Not because your resolve is just so great naturally the way God gifted you. But because you are firmly and fervently rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Knowing that his righteousness has paid everything for you. That you are adopted into the kingdom of God. If we could, could we go back to the assurance of grace? I think it was on the second page of the assurance of grace uh, back there, there was a line in there that I like, and I'm going to edit just a little bit. There, if you see on the second line, uh, excuse me, on the fourth line, for if the grave cannot hold him and death cannot defeat him, nothing is impossible for him. You know, oftentimes that word if is used, but there's another word that we could, and I think it is at times appropriate to use. What's that word instead of if? Since. Let's read that again. For since the grave cannot hold him and death cannot defeat him, nothing is impossible for him. This is the God whom we serve. The God who was with us every step of the way. The God who, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is not going to abandon us to the flames. He might not free us from the flames. We might suffer, but guess what? 
He is right there with us every moment, strengthening us to abide it. And church family, let us take hope in this. Let us take comfort in this. Let us never cease to remind ourselves of this each and every day so that when persecution comes, we might stand firm in Christ and experience the joy that comes along with that. Let's pray.